Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dear Melissa. Today, I've got a very special treat for you because it's not just going to be me answering your questions, but also later in this episode, I'm joined by Teresa Torres to answer a question straight from you. So this one has to deal with how escaping the bill trap and continuous discovery habits go together. So I'm very excited to welcome Teresa a little bit later, but we're first going to kick it off with two of the questions on methodologies. And we're going to talk all about how we can you know, work with people who have very strong opinions on methodologies and how they might scale to really large organizations before we start talking about how what I write about and what Teresa writes about goes together. And I wanna remind you that you can ask me any of your questions as well. So go to dearmelissa.com, let me know what you're thinking about, what you have questions about, and every other week I answer your questions. So without further ado, let's dive into this week. First question, Dear Melissa, As a new product manager, how would you handle working with senior designers who are strongly opinionated, want to track everything, and convinced that there is only one correct method for problem solving? Sounds like you have somebody who is very strong in their beliefs working on your team. And this does happen a lot. But I think it goes down to really understanding who that person is and why they believe the things they do. So I'd say maybe take a step back, take a breath, because this can be extremely frustrating to work with people who are like, no, my way is the right way and I don't want to listen to anything else. And sometimes their way is the right way. So I think we do need to acknowledge like, hey, maybe the way that they want to work is good for this situation. In which case, like pick your battles and do whatever they want to do, right? If their methodology or their way of working works, like don't fight them, just do it, right? It's not about ego, it's about getting things done. Now in other situations though, you might have something that works better. And maybe more often than not, you might have a different way of working that you've seen work better in another organization or somewhere else. But this person is like, no, this is how we do it here. So now you're going to have to figure out why. Why do they like the thing that they're talking about, right? So start talking to them. Be like, okay, great. I'm really eager to try your methodology, your problem solving thing. Can you tell me about why you think it might be better than this other one? Tell me about you know how it works, how you learned it try to dig into what's good about it and why they think it applies to that context and try to figure out also why they fear new methodologies, right? Ask them like, hey, would you consider maybe trying something new? Here's why I think it would work in this context. It's a little bit different than the one you just described. We're doing X, Y, and Z. We might be at a different stage of product development, in which case this might actually work better. I'd approach it like that and just listen to them, but be open about it, right? I think if you're dismissive, to people who are very stuck on their one way of working, they're going to be dismissive right back to you. So you do have to say like, hey, I really want to you know, try some new things. I wonder if you would be open to it, but explain to me why, why not? Like what makes you scared, right? What's holding you back from trying this, from like expanding our way of actually doing this types of problem solving and listen to them. There are some designers who, you know, have read a ton of books, got stuck on their methodologies, 
just the same way that product managers have gotten stuck on their methodologies too. So I'll say this is like not a unique thing to just designers. This is a thing everywhere. I've had people be like, no, this is our only way of doing development. You know, no, this is our only way of doing product management. No, this is our only way of doing like market research. This happens all over the place. So this is a good life lesson and good skill to practice for everyone. So I'll say that, but take a step back and try to bring it back to the context in which you're operating. Understand if their problem-solving method might be good for that context or it might be bad for that context. And you're gonna wanna explain, but you're gonna wanna stick to your guns if it's bad and try to show them how you can be doing things differently with a better or different methodology. I do see a lot of designers too, just get scared that they won't be involved in the whole process. So if you said they wanna track everything, I don't think it's bad to track everything. I wonder what they wanna track, right? Are they just documenting things so that we can actually have a record of it and see it later? Are they tracking all the design changes? Is that what's happening so that they don't make that mistake? Like, what do you mean by track everything, right? I would kind of poke into that. But if they're thinking about only one way of problem solving, they may have had situations in the past too where they've been pushed out of problem solving by product managers and they might be grasping to their way of working so that they're involved. I've seen that happen as well too. Or product managers are like, no, you just do the design. You don't do any of the, you know, the user research, the UX components, that's product, right? Like you're just a designer. So that's happened as well. So I would really try to get to the root of it. Like, why do they think their methodology is better? Why, you know, what context have they applied it before? And figure out too, how you can kind of make them the hero or bring them in closer to collaborate with you and quell those fears. Because usually when people are sticking to something and saying like, this is the only way, it might be one, the only way they know how to do it. So that that's something to remember, right? Like they might have only one methodology they know how to do. In which case, they're gonna be like, no, this is the way we do it because they don't know any better, right? Like they don't, they don't know what else to do. So in which case you could say like, hey, it's kind of similar, but maybe we take a little different take on it and, and try a different methodology. But a big part of this is actually building trust. And I think that happens in a lot of these situations where we get into like culture wars about who wants to do scrum versus agile versus like, you know, continuous discovery habits that we'll be talking about later and all those things. Like people start to identify with these processes and methodologies because that's the way they learn or they believe it's the right way to do it. So if they firmly believe that's the right way and the only way to do it, it's good to go back to first principles. And sometimes we forget that. We forget about the first principle, you know, motions when it comes to these methodologies and why we're here in the first place. So I like to rip up methodologies in a lot of cases and just say, hey, like, let's just talk about where we are and what we're doing, right? What do we need to learn? Where are we in the process? All right, how are we going to learn that? Don't shout a methodology on me. Like, literally, what are we going to do? Are we going to talk to customers? Do we got to go talk to 20 of them or not? Like, if we're going to think about this problem, like, should we be doing testing? What kind of experiments are we going to do? If we're into road mapping, how should we collaborate on it? Like, strip away the terminology. And I think you'll get a lot further. And I do this very frequently. Like I've had people coin my process that I talk about in the book saying like, it's the escaping the bill trap process. But like, I firmly don't even believe that's, that's like a, you know, a registered process. I think that's just how we build great products, but I'm not wedded to any specific methodology. I'm wedded to whatever is going to get us to the answer fastest and in the best place. So that's what I think we all have to come back to when we get into these wars, it's like, it's not about your problem solving technique or mine. It's about solving the problem. So let's strip away 
all these tools, all these techniques, everything, and just talk about solving the problem and what we're going to do. Maybe try that approach because I do think you get a lot further there instead of saying like, hey, XYZ process is better than your ABC process. Like if you're fighting that way, you're just going to get into a war about nothing. So kind of step back, take a deep breath because I'm sure you're frustrated. And there, I've run into a lot of people like this and I've been frustrated too. And just ask questions. Why? Why do you believe that? But not in a confrontational way. You have to say to them too, like, I'm on your side and I just want to build this, but I want to understand like why this works. So please help me understand that. And let's just figure out how to solve these problems better together. So maybe try taking that diplomatic approach, even though it might be frustrating and see if you get a little bit further that way. All right. Next question. Dear Melissa, I work for a global fortune 500 company with many product lines. In the past three years, we have been on a transformation journey in adopting agile and DevOps ways of working across our technology organization, as well as forming a dedicated digital product management organization, allowing us to shift from dynamic project teams to stable product teams. We are leveraging very lightweight scaling framework that is not safe. However, we continue to see a lot of coordination friction in prioritizing and delivering cross-team and cross-division initiatives. I'm curious what you have seen to be effective approaches to getting strategic alignment and execution in a large enterprise company that has many products and product strategies, whether it's prioritization approaches, team topology adjustments, or any other tools or techniques you have brought into these situations. So what you're experiencing is exactly why Denise and I are writing the product operations book, because what you're finding is that you don't have one consistent way of how you work in product across the company. Many companies, when they go through a very large scale transformation, using what you talked about, DevOps and Agile, they leave product management till the last thing. And then they start scaling and they're asking exactly the same question you are. What do we do to coordinate? And that's really what product management is about. It's about setting a strategy and deploying it throughout the organization to figure out what we should be building and making sure we're all building the right things at the right time in the right teams, right? So that's really what we're looking out for product management. And always it gets left to the last thing. It's like, oh, we did all the tech stuff. Like, Now we should throw some product on top of it. And the answer to this, though, is not usually to go adopt safe or something else, because that's almost solving the same problems that you're dealing with at the moment from a technology perspective. When you look at product management, there is a pretty standard way that people do it across the board in companies. Some people do it better than others, and that's why it might look different. But we're all kind of converging down to similar processes. Now, the biggest thing is in these organizations, what happens is you leave product leadership almost always till the last thing to think about. So what you need to be doing is really centralizing your product under one person, which is why I advocate for a chief product officer you know, at the top. So somebody's got to be thinking about what is your software product management strategy. From there, you deploy it down to the next levels, and that can be in different business lines across the organization, and then they deploy it down but now you can start coordinating. So if you don't have a person actually running this and thinking about, hey, we need product operations, we need to set up the teams in this correct way, all that, it's going to take you a lot longer to do this because you're transforming kind of internally, but you're not bringing in the good product knowledge that people have been doing for years. So that's what makes this transformation a lot harder. So it's usually good to bring in some people who know what they're doing at this level and help mix it up. So typically, you're going to need a product strategy cadence and review. How do you set product strategy? How do you deploy product strategy? What artifacts are you making? All that stuff. Then you're going to want to think about what do we standardize across the board so that we can all collaborate together? 
Those are things like roadmaps. Like you shouldn't have 18 formats for roadmaps. But it's also things about what do we talk about to get people together to do those strategy reviews. If we do have cross-initiative you know, problems that we're actually solving, how do we bring those people together to talk about it? So you're setting the cadence and building the framework for how your organization actually works. You also want to do things like standardized discovery toolkits and look at what else you know will cross different teams and different people to help communicate what product is doing out of the organization, but also within the organization. So somebody usually designs this at every organization, and there are a lot of stuff out there that you can grab and just borrow and bring in. Like people have been doing roadmaps in different formats. Just like take one that works for you and put it in there. You're going to want to think about also introducing a software for that. A lot of times we'll get Jira for our software and we're like, oh, we're done. But that's not good enough. Jira is not a product management software and it actually sucks at everything product management. So you're going to want to look at something that goes on top of Jira and helps pull that information out. So you need a good road mapping software, a good product portfolio software, and there's a bunch out there that you can start to look at. I really like Dragon Boat that sits on top of Jira. There's things like Product Board. There's a bunch of other things out there that does product portfolio mapping. That's going to help you with this cross-initiative problem. So really look at what tools are in place because you probably have a lot of good stuff from a technology DevOps standpoint, it sounds like, but not from a product management standpoint. So we need to consider product management not just as like the piece of Agile that we forgot to implement. It's like it's actually a whole discipline. So it needs the same type of rigor and the same type of uh, introduction that you just did for that agile transformation needs to be applied to product management. And I don't see a lot of organizations doing that. It's like, oh, yep, we forgot about it. Now let's just put it in until they realize it's a problem. And then, you know, that's when I get called and then I come out. But I would really look at, you know, what are the pain points we have here? Bringing somebody who knows how to design a product management organization. And I would embed those people in your team. Like I'm not sitting here telling you to hire me as a consultant. I'm saying hire somebody who's been a product leader before because they'll be able to do the things you're talking about like in their sleep. They've done it before. They've brought these things into the organization. So that's why I'm saying like, we really need some higher level good product people scattered throughout the organization that can help bring that rigor in, can help work on it. And usually they'll create something like a product operations team who will standardize it across the organization and that will be good. So that's the type of things that you need to be looking at when you're trying to figure out what do we need for product management? Because all of the stuff that you're talking about is really in that discipline. It's not a technology discipline. It's not a DevOps discipline. It's not an agile discipline. It's a product management discipline. So that those people know the methodologies, they know the framework. So I would really just try to hire in people who've done this before throughout the organization because they will level you up and they will help with this. And that's going to be really important. And that's also why a key product operations hire in an enterprise level becomes so great and so key to making sure that you're all working seamlessly together. So that's somebody that you might want to think about bringing on to help guide this in your organization as well. Facilitation is a skill I see as a fundamental difference between good and great product managers. Yet, it's often overlooked. Great product managers focus on guiding clear conversations and steering stakeholders to the best outcomes. You can develop these facilitation superpowers in Voltage Control's Facilitation Certification Program. Ready to unlock your greatness? Apply today at voltagecontrol.com slash product. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. 
we have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. All right, last question. This one's going to take a little bit more help. So we're going to jump over and talk to Teresa. Welcome, Teresa. Thanks for joining me on the Dear Melissa episode this week. Oh, thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, so we got a question that I feel like getting your input on this as well is going to be good to uh, get this person his answer. So let me read it to you and let's discuss. Sure. So they say, Dear Melissa, I've been working in product management for years, and I feel that since I read your book, along with others, there are so many things that can be done and that I'm still in diapers when it comes to knowledge. Of the several books I've read, three are Escaping the Bill Trap, Your Book, I Love the Concept of Praticata, and I Try to Apply It, The Lean Product Playbook by Dan Olson, Continuous Discovery Habits by Teresa Torres, I just finished it today. My problem is that your methodology and Dan Olson's complement each other very well, but the continuous discovery approach is quite different from what you propose. Do you think both methodologies are complementary? Or maybe they're very different things to apply? So what's your first reaction to that? <laughs> I'm a little bit surprised by it because I, I feel like our content is really complimentary, maybe even more so than any other two product books out there, other than like, you know, Marty does a good job of inspiring everybody with here's some big ideas. That's not a dig. I love his book, but it's, it's for the books that are getting more into the how, like this is what you should be doing. This is how you can think about things. I find they're really complimentary. Um, so I'm a little bit surprised by that. Um, maybe, maybe like we could explore this by, getting into the product kata, because I think there's a really easy connection between our work there. Yeah, I was too. Like, I, I was like, let me, I, I think I slacked you the question as soon as I read it, because I was like, I don't think these things are at odds at all. I think they work very well together. So when he talks about the product kata in here, what I try to describe to people as a product kata, which is based off of Toyota kata, is it's a continuous improvement framework, which yeah. is continuous discovery, right? And I feel like that continuous nature of the framework goes really, really well with what you teach. And in the product kata, what you basically do is understand the strategy coming down from the company. You um, then try to evaluate it for where your piece is. So for example, if you're a product manager on a team in a slightly larger company, like you're going to be given some goals, you're going to be given some direction around like, what kinds of problems do we want to solve? Not necessarily what features we want to build. So now that you have that context, you basically say, all right, where are we now? What's our current state of our product that we're looking at compared to that context from the company? And if you don't know it, you've got to go out there and do some work to figure out what it is. So you got to like measure what it is. You got to see where you are on your goals. You got to understand what customers are doing now, which is a discovery you know, thing that you should be doing. So once you figure that out, you basically set the next goal. So you break down that really large goal that might be financial focused or like business focused into something more product focused that we can achieve faster. And then we start to kata. So we basically say, okay, in light of this goal, where are we now compared to it? Do we know enough about things? Do we have to answer more questions? Or did we get some questions answered? And do we have to build something? Like, where are we? What do we know? So I basically make people write out questions that need to be answered. And then they prioritize them and they pick which question they want to focus on first. 
And then they run an experiment or they go talk to customers or they build a prototype or they build a version one and release it depending on where they are in the process. So very early on, it's heavy discovery work tools. And then later on, it's probably going to be releasing an iteration and then measuring it. And then you cycle again. So you say, okay, we released it. We got some feedback we learned. And now where are we compared to this current state? So I feel like that works super well with what you describe with the continuous discovery habits, but maybe you can shed some light on how you think that fits in or, or what you encourage people to do there. Yeah, I mean, I think it, they overlap really nicely. Like you talk about, you start with some sort of financial outcome and you're trying to figure out how do you map that to what you can do in the short run. I talk about that as business outcomes and product outcomes, right? Like our business says we need this business outcome. That's how you're going to create value for the business. We got to translate that to a product outcome, a behavior in the product that a product team can influence. And then I think your sort of learning cycles map really nicely to the rest of the habits. Like, what are you doing to learn? Well, you're interviewing, you're assumption testing, you're visualizing what you know to stay aligned as a team, and we're working our way through all the discovery habits. Yeah, you know what I, I think might be happening here, and I see this a lot, is like people like really struggle with concepts that overlap. Yeah. It's like they don't that synthesis of like these, this is similar and this is similar is hard to distinguish. And it's, I'm not surprised, right? I feel like to do that work, you have to know both concepts really well and then kind of dig in to like, okay, what's similar here? What's different here? An example of this is like OKRs. So everyone on the planet is using OKRs. And the most common question I get is how is the outcome different from an OKR? Yeah. Right? And it's like, <laughs> okay, yeah. okay, well, these are really overlapping concepts. Like, first of all, an OKR is a format. It's not like, it's a format for expressing a concept. And that concept, by the way, is an outcome, right? But when you're new, these ideas are fuzzy and confusing. So you don't have that crispness. Whereas I think you and I like have spent all day, every day thinking about these ideas forever. And we can read each other's stuff and go, oh, these overlap here. Yeah. Right? So I don't know, to your the person who submitted the question, what I would say is that I would look for the similarities more than looking for the differences. Cause I don't I personally don't think we have a lot of differences other than the fact that I hyper focus on the team level, which mm -hmm. is why all the habits are focused at the team level. Whereas I feel like you're bringing, especially in your book, this broader organizational level. I think that's the difference, right? But like the content overlap is spot on. Yeah. And I, I will say too, like when I talk about katas and, you know, this is a lot of the stuff that I'm doing in my new talk now to talk about it, like it scales through each level of an organization. So like you would kata at the executive level and then you would kata at the VP level and then director level and then the team levels, right? So like the kata is not just for product managers. It's actually for the whole team to get together and say, what do we know? What do we not know? So I actually think there's tons of synergies there with, you know, what your habits are. And what I try to tell people is like, when you get to that part that's execute, which is the last step of the kata, which is run that experiment, design it, figure out what it is to learn. Like that's when you go back and choose like which methodology you're going to use, right? Like that's when you go, do I need a usability test right now? Do I need to build a prototype? Do I need to talk to customers? Do I need to do, you know, interviews? Like what's the right tool to use at this moment? And I think that kind of trips people up because they see, Kata, maybe more, and maybe yours too. You might run into this as well. I'm curious if you do, but I get a lot of people read my book and they go, Oh, it's like it's a specific process or it's a specific tool, right? Instead of like guidelines of how you should be doing the work. And 
to be fair, like when I was starting out too, I, I, I was reconciling some of the new stuff I was learning and going, oh, I must use this tool first. And then I use this tool. And then I use that tool. And I started to realize like, no, it really just depends on the context of which I, you know, what problem I'm facing. But I think a little bit of that is going on too. Yeah, I think it, it's hard. Like, again, I think because we think about it all the time, it's easy for us to like simplify like, oh, this is the same and this is different. And here's where they overlap. I was really like part of the reason why I put habits in the title of my book is that I did not want to write a process book right? It is a process, but I did not want to write a process book. And like, it's so hard to convey the messiness of discovery, right? Like people think like, oh, I have to define an outcome and then I have to discover opportunities. And then I move on to discovering solutions. It's not linear. It's not linear. Like you could define an outcome, go have your very first customer conversation and realize you got your outcome wrong, right? Like every... One of the things I say all the time is every future step feeds back on the previous step and it's all happening in parallel. And I see people make a lot of mistakes because they see it as a process. Like they, they create one opportunity solution tree. They, it's a one-time activity. They never visit it again. And they're like, well, this is my understanding of my customer's needs. Well, your understanding of your customer needs is really shallow because you had three conversations and synthesized once. That's not the job, right? Yeah. I think you're right. I think like when you're new, you really need a process. It's like scaffolding, right? You need somebody to tell you first do this, then do this, then do that. And then I think as you gain experience, you start to see, oh, I can mix and match things. Yeah, exactly. What's interesting about this is when I like sketched out the first opportunity solution tree, what I was trying to do with that was how do I help a team know what to do when? Like, how do I help them see through the mess. Like I wasn't trying to come up with like, oh, here's Teresa's framework. I was just trying to come up with like, here's a simple way to visualize what you've done and where you are. And I was trying to look for like, is there this like underlying structure in the mess of our work? And what I was hoping was that it would help unlock for teams like, oh, I have a really shallow understanding of the opportunity space. That means I need to go interview. Or, oh, I'm not considering enough solutions for this opportunity. I need to go ideate again. Or I have a lot of untested assumptions here. I need to go run some assumption tests. Like I was really hoping that that visual would help people see what to do when and like sort out the mess more than here's a process you follow A, B, C, and D. It turns out in practice, people want, they see it as a, as a process that they just want to follow. They do. Yeah, <laughs> they, they do. And I think like for me too, that, that's what I was trying to do with Kata was like, it's not about, because I think a lot of people were like, oh, first we do discovery, then we get into delivery and then we move on, right? <laughs> like, and then that's where we go. And it's so loopy. And the reason that I like teaching Kata is very much for the same reason where it's like, it's supposed to be like cyclical. And if you just keep asking yourself, like, have we reached our goal? And if not, why? Why could be we have the wrong outcome too, like you're saying, right? You can go back and you change that and you adjust it and you keep learning and you keep like growing that way. And I still think like tools that we talk about, like opportunity solution trees, like there's a moment in Kata where you should be doing an opportunity solution tree when you go out and you gather all that current state and you're you're trying to figure out like, I say the first couple steps when you do Kata is usually figuring out where you're going to go. So when you have to set that next goal or that next direction, right, that's choosing which one of those opportunities you want on the solution tree. 
to try to go after like what's my thing and then if you prove it wrong you you change it and you move on to the next one but you're just always continuously cycling through it so you're reminding me of like another really common thing that i see where people take an idea like a concept and they don't understand like this concept was designed for a very specific purpose yeah instead they try to apply it to everything right so like i get questions all the time i'm working on a regulation, like a legal requirement where we have to build this thing. And there's, I don't really have any discovery. So what do I put on my opportunity solution tree? Um, well, why are you using an opportunity solution tree? Like using one? Yeah, it's not, it's not meant for that. Yeah. An opportunity solution tree helps you reach an outcome. You're trying to produce an output that's known. So when people try to MVP around bugs, yeah, I'm like, no, yeah. So that's a little <laughs> bit broken. like, what that tells me is that like, you're still struggling with, which is fine. Like we've all been there. You're still struggling with like, what is this discrete concept and when do I use it where? Yeah. And so I think like going back to the person's original question, like our books have a lot of discrete concepts, right? Like we introduce a lot of stuff out there. And so then it's like, you have all these micro bits of like, where's that overlap? So I'm not, I guess I I have empathy for the person that submitted the question. Like I I get it. I think that the product landscape is messy right now. Yeah. I think what I would recommend is just work with one concept at a time. Like really try to own it. Like what's in my head right now is the Richard Feynman story where he talks about what it means to really know what a flower is. Have you ever seen that? No, I haven't seen that one. Do you know who Richard Feynman is? Yeah. Okay. So he like this video. I I saw it and I it motivated me to read everything he's ever written. Like he was just such a delightful human. He, it's like a 10 minute video and he just goes on and on about what it takes to really know something. And he talks about like knowing the name of the flower doesn't really mean, you know, know what the flower is. And like, he's a physicist. So he's getting down to the, like the subatomic particles of the flower and what it means to be a flower. Right. But like he's engaging at this depth where he's trying to fully understand a concept and where does it work and where does it not work and like he and what i love about his work is he describes it in such play terms like he's playing with the concept he's stretching it he's seeing what fits and what doesn't and i think so many people are rushing to just collect frameworks i think i would say like just slow down and play with the concepts i think that's really great advice and i I think you you really nailed it And I want to thank the person who submitted this. Like, thank you, because this is a question I get a lot. And I'm sure you get it too, where it's like, I don't think this works with that. I don't think this works with that. And I think a lot of us are just out there trying to give people tools to do their work better. But if you really think about like, I think the maturity curve of when you get really great at product management is, you know, where you can just look at all these tools, all these frameworks and be like, I use this now, right? This is when I have to do this, right? And you, you don't start thinking about, the super specific processes, you're more about understanding the context and then figuring out if I can use a tool to help me learn better. So thank you so much, Teresa, for jumping on here and answering this question with me. And uh, for those of you out there listening to the Product Thinking Podcast, please continue to ask the hard questions. Yeah, thanks for having me. So that's it for the Dear Melissa this week. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to the Product Thinking Podcast. And also write in and let me know what questions you have too. So go to dearmelissa.com, let me know what you're thinking, and I'll see you next Wednesday.